All right. How many of you have a handout or rather need a handout? I'm sorry, that'd be a better question. All right. Just a couple of you. If you'd like, you can take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Or I have printed pretty much all the verses that we're going to look at tonight there on your sheet. Um, We'll be looking at, uh, I want to give you the schedule of where we're at. So uh, since I just announced that we're going to be doing a a book study here in the summer, we only have two, including tonight, more times to talk about church government. Um, We've gone past the time of talking about Uh, Whether this is biblical or not, we've explained all that. These are topics now that we're talking about implementing. Um, Who are we looking for? That's what we're looking at tonight. Who are we looking for to be non-paid or or non-staff elders or lay elders? Um, And then next week, we're going to be talking about deacons. Um, That's going to be a big change for us. Um, We're moving away from uh, the title of trustees. Um, we currently have that office now. That's not described in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's, it's inherently wrong. But we want to follow through with what the scriptures teach, especially in the New Testament. The two offices are elder and deacon. So next week we're going to be talking about deacons. And I just wanted to give a little commercial books that we've made available to you there in the auditorium. Three smaller ones. What do deacons do? This is a helpful little book that'd be helpful for you to to read through. Um, this is a little bigger. It'll probably take you about an hour and a half total to read. It's Deacons by Matt Smetherst. Um, this is how they serve and strengthen the church. And then John MacArthur. This is an older um, work, a small little booklet called Answering the Key Questions About Deacons. So we'll be talking about deacons next week, tonight, the biblical qualifications for elders. So as we turn our thoughts to this topic, I want to ask us to begin to think through our view of leadership in Scripture or in our organizations. What makes a great leader? If you thought of one character quality that you were looking for, what would come to your mind? And why? Why would that come to your mind? If you're thinking, how can we make our organization a success? What are you looking for in that person? Maybe a different question. I think it should be a different question. What makes a great leader in the church? What makes a great leader in the church? What I found over the last several years of studying this topic, looking at scripture's emphasis on what it is to lead in a church family, this issue is very dissimilar to what our world looks for in business, in politics, in other organizations. Leadership in the church should be unlike leadership in the world. Pastor and author Juan Sanchez introduces his book, The Leadership Formula, by asking, why are we so obsessed with leadership? It's not inherently wrong, but part of the answer is that good leadership leads towards success. That's what we think, right? You get the right leaders in place, your organization is a success. The strength of our leaders directly affects the strength of the organization. Another part of the answer he gives is that we desire ourselves to have leadership and influence. We think we can be a help. We want to determine the rules of the game sometimes. We want to be heard and followed. In our world today, leadership means status. And that's how we measure ourselves. Am I somebody of value because of who I am based on my leadership role? Is that how the scriptures teach us to think 
about influence and leadership in a body? How do we even in our fallen condition, though, choose leaders? Are we focused on what God tells us to identify? Remember in the story of Samuel. I've made this analogy before. Even Samuel is seduced by appearances when he goes to the house of Jesse. He's seduced how many times over before he gets to the one that God chose, right? He looks at the oldest. He's tall. He looks like he could lead well, right? Remember, Saul is head and shoulders above everybody else. Surely that must mean leadership, right? We know how that went. Sanchez writes again, I have to wonder if part of the leadership problem in the church today is that we are so drawn to competency, so enamored with giftedness, so appealed to by sight that we fail to consider the biblical qualifications for leadership. The Bible does not expect competency from Christian leaders. It does expect, rather, I'm sorry, it does expect competency from Christian leaders. It's just that throughout Scripture, character is always emphasized above, over competency. In fact, God uses the seemingly incompetent to confound the competent leaders of this world. Think of that. This is perfectly illustrated in John 13, isn't it? Jesus washes the feet of those who stood beneath him in rank. Those who question him over and over again. Those whose understanding is pathetically small compared to his own. He does what no respected rabbi would do in his day. He does what the slave would do. He girds himself with a towel and washes their feet. And then he says, as I've done to you, you do to one another. Is that what we think of as we think of leadership? He calls every believer, though, to that same kind of love and service to each other. The Bible also uses this metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep over and over and over again. That kind of leadership certainly has decisions to make. They do exercise authority, but it's always with view of caring and loving the well-being and growth and health of his flock. Christians, both men and women, who are given the opportunity to lead in any sphere, whether that's the classroom or the home or the church, in any sphere, should lead in this kind of a manner. That's challenging, isn't it? So even as we walk through a, a, a list that Paul will give for leadership, I want you to be looking at that list and saying, is that character quality a part of my life? Is that character quality being developed in my heart? Where, where do I need to put some more effort Ask for God's grace to help me grow in these ways. And I encourage you and challenge you to ask yourself this kind of a question. Examine your own life through this grid, through this lens. What does my life look like? And then can I ask you to evaluate? What value are you placing on positions as you think of leadership in the church? Are you thinking like even a godly man like Samuel was thinking and thinking by sight? Or are you letting scripture tell us we need to be looking at character? What we see in scripture and specifically in the pastoral epistles is that leadership is so important that God has not left us to ourselves to devise our own models of leadership. 
He tells us what they should be like, who they should be like. I think one of the things that stands out to me is even as we look at all of these, we're going to see what we should be thinking and seeing is the perfect portrait of our Savior. Again, every leader in the church is under, is submissive, he should be, to the king of the church, to the true leader of our body. He must keep that in mind. For the organization and description of these qualifications that you have before you, I'm largely depending on Benjamin Merkel's excellent chapter in Baptist Foundations. It's a book that is subtitled Church Government for an Anti-Institutional Age. So when you examine the scriptural text, as we begin to think through now this list, there's lots of different things that an elder is supposed to be. When you begin to think through that and we enumerate the qualifications, you should recognize the overwhelming simplicity of them. They're all listed in one place or another for Christians, for the body, for ordinary members, for all of us. See, even the leaders are members of the body. They're supposed to be growing in all of these, except for a couple of them. We'll look at those. The only exceptions are that an elder must not be a new convert, and he must be able to teach. The rest are what we're all supposed to be. So the point is, what God is doing by placing mature men in front of us is to say... All of us are to grow to be like that as they grow to follow Jesus Christ. Paul explains that. Imitate me as I follow Christ. That's the point. Again, the focus is on who a person is more than on what he does. Character is emphasized over competency. Now, I want you to understand, one of the things that's hard about this, in in a sense, is that we don't have a job description like we might like or an outline of how a pastor or elder should manage his time each week. Instead, Scripture's burden is to tell us what kind of man this should be. And do you see why, as we're talking about what leadership in the church is to look like? If he's supposed to be a shepherd walking out in front of the sheep, and the sheep are watching him, that's his most important ministry, is to be a godly example. A pastor does not get to command and say, you must do this. His primary tool is encouragement and persuasion from the word. So we'll see that ability to be apt to teach is vitally important if he's going to help raise the maturity to help the church develop and grow. Now, these verses don't list as well every qualification that a man must have, but they describe his character in general. We could maybe think of some other things that we might want to put on these lists, on this list. But the point isn't that this is exhaustive, it's representative. It's what his life is to generally be characterized by. So we must not misunderstand this or we'll take these as wooden requirements that then we overstate and restrict the office unnecessarily. This will be clear as we look at a couple, especially near the end. But I want you to understand that. Hold that in your mind. These are not saying... Um, especially as you think of the last two that are on your sheet, if you turn those over, about his household. It's not saying certain things, okay? It's giving us a general direction of his life. I'll explain more as we go. I hope that even stirs some questions in your mind. All right, so situational qualifications. Uh, There are three that we begin with um, that are situational. So first, the desire to serve. As we consider who among us should be considered for a role of non-staff or lay elder, we first want to find out from this man. This would be a conversation from the current elders 
to this man if he would like to lead, if he desires this kind of ministry, this kind of service, this ministry of the word for himself? Does he see that he has gifts and abilities in leading and serving the congregation through the explanation and application of the word of God to the people of God? Now, here's part of what I want to be, be uh, stated in this, is this is something that's already should be seen, and he's encouraged in his own life, and the body is encouraged. When we put up an elder, the body will nominate, the, the elders will vet, the pastors will vet, we'll put that name up. You shouldn't see that name and say, him? Right? You should say, that. that's a shepherd that's already shepherding among us. I've seen or heard of, of his use of the word, his explanations of the word, his care of the body, and that, that's going well around him. It's, it's almost like you could think of it as a spot in the garden that is well fertilized and watered, and there's growth in the body there where he's working, where he's cultivating health and life. Now, this idea of desiring to serve, there can be a negative to this. Some desire to serve in such an office from impure motives, such as greed. And that, that can be not just greed in the first century sense where they're trying to be teachers so that they can, you know, ask God's people to give them a little bit more and a little bit more. And they're driving around Greenville in a Lamborghini or something else that we've heard before, right? It, it can be for their pride. They want to be recognized as somebody significant, And they're seeking a place of pride. Paul wants to make clear that those who are chosen to serve should want to serve. That's really important, isn't it? This designates that this person is willing to give themselves to the people of God. At some point, for every elder, staff or non-staff, he's going to be required to sacrifice. His time, his energy, his emotional investments... He's going to have to sacrifice. So are these men that we consider, are they willing to serve even if they're not officially recognized or given a title? Those are kind of the men we're supposed to be looking for. Those are the men that I'm most encouraged by as I look across the body. Some I see are developing those gifts and they will be ready someday to be elders. I'm confident of it. I can see that all the way down. Even into our youth group. I'm supposed to be looking for that. 2 Timothy 2.2. Find faithful men who can teach others also. We're supposed to be looking for that together. We want this to go on beyond our current leadership. Who among us has godly character that can encourage others with the word? That's exciting when you think about it. The gospel ministry is propelled forward as we invest in the next generation. Are these... Uh, Men that we're looking for, are there some among us who are caring for God's people as a shepherd, even before they're recognized in that role? How can we encourage them in that development? You know, one way I could encourage you as a body to get involved is where you see godly men exercising their gifts, godly women around you exercising their gifts, encourage them. Let them know how those gifts are a blessing to you. If it's a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, it might be somebody in your small group who makes an especially helpful application, go to them and tell them. Maybe shoot them a text and say, I I really appreciated that comment. That was helpful. Be a means of growth among the body and our leadership in that way. Ben Merkel states, It is best to select those people who are already joyfully serving in some capacity, although they may have no formal office in the church yet. 
Those who desire to serve God as elders desire a good thing, but desire alone is never enough. This desire must be accompanied by moral character and spiritual capability. If you're wondering if that's you, one of the things that I'd encourage you to do is consider how God's people are encouraging you in that. They'll help you know. They'll tell you what parts of your ministry are most encouraging to them. And that's a really good sign that they're recognizing this, this is God's gifting in your life. This isn't just your natural winsome personality. Maybe God's showing you something through God's people. Second, able to teach. This comes from 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 9. An overseer must be able to teach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is a one that we need to be careful to understand well and can be a little bit confusing. What does, what does this look like? Well, elders must be able to communicate God's word in a way that is accurate and understandable. And I think both of those are good descriptors. He needs to be passionate about saying what God says. So that will mean something. That will mean something beyond the times he's up in public talking. It means he's a student of the word and nobody has to beg him to study the word. And then he's understandable. God's people are saying, oh, that that makes sense. Oh, that was really helpful. I'd like to hear more of his thoughts and they might even be going to him one-on-one. An elder must not only be an able teacher, he must also teach sound doctrine and correct those in error. So there's two sides. There's a positive that's building up the body and there's a negative that's protecting the body. He cannot merely have a cursory knowledge of the Bible, but is immersed in the teachings of Scripture. This will be a growing desire to get more and more out of the Word, understanding theology, understanding what he believes, so that he can both exhort in sound doctrine and rebuke those who reject sound doctrine. So part of what this means is that an elder must be biblically discerning, discerning. He has to know how to put this into practice when things in the church aren't going so well. They're the frontline defenders of the unity of the body. They're able to see a situation when somebody's discontent or complaining or raising an issue, and they're not immediately defensive, but they're ready with principles to say, this this is why we're doing what we're doing. They step into a situation not just to appease the person, but to disciple them even through the conflict. That takes some skill. That takes practice. Remember what Paul warns the Ephesian elders of in Acts 20, 29 through 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Okay, so so far, there's wolves out there. They'll come in among you, not sparing the flock. They don't care how it affects the body. And the next verse, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now that's an even so more sobering warning, isn't it? You're going to have to stand up against people within your own body at times. That is one of the hardest things to do as a pastor in ministry. That's the time when, as, as some of you know well, your pastors are thinking, I'm not sure I signed up for this, right? But it's essential for the health and the mission of the church. 
We've all been in churches before. We've had it in this church where there's times of upheaval or transition and people have this passion and this priority and there's got to be leaders who are able to say from the word of God, listen, we've got to move forward together and it's able to bring unity out of time of chaos. That's where an elder team of men who are committed to the word can link arms together and handle that together. So you're looking for a man who can handle even hard issues with discernment. His first priority is not just to please everybody. Issues arise sometimes that are hard to lead through. An elder cannot be afraid to upset others. His first commitment is to his king and his king's word. Based on the biblical principles, he will lead. So inevitably, he will be called on to make hard choices that are not always popular. In God's kindness and providence, we are experiencing a time of great unity and enjoyment as a church family. Um, God is growing our body in, in, in depth into the word, in our fellowship with one another. But congregation, we can't just think that that will always be the case. We're looking for mature men who are able to both teach sound doctrine and refute those who do not teach that. Those who may come up from within the body and say, well, let's go this way. Well, how do we know? How do we know we should do that or not? They have to be men of the word. Now, if every elder must be apt to teach, this is a common question. Does that mean all elders must teach or preach publicly? Or I've heard the question put this way. Are all of our Sunday school teachers then immediately elders? Well, not necessarily to both, to both questions. Those are maybe two different questions. Now, certainly all elders should be involved in some kind of word ministry, right? It would seem very odd for Paul to require that all elders be apt to teach. And then we say, well, you don't have to do that. No, the word must be the primary tool that an elder is using to bring health, to promote health within a body. They should be using their teaching abilities or gifts in the church actively. But that doesn't demand that they teach in the largest public gatherings. That may not be their gifting. That may be something that they're developing. Um, That doesn't mean they have to do that. They may be much more helpful and gifted to teach and disciple in a small group setting or or one-to-one. I know of a sister church where one of their staff pastors, he almost never preaches from the pulpit, but he's their main counseling pastor. And he's very effective in that role. Um, So that's very possible that it would look like that. Uh, Wayne Grudem describes Paul's intention. Paul wants to guarantee that elders have a mature and sound understanding of Scripture and can explain it to others. I think that's a great summary then. He's saying Paul's intention is that the word is what guides this man and his influence on God's people. All right, the last one in this section, not a new convert. Uh, Verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So he must not be a new or immature believer. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what he means by new convert. What does a new convert mean? How long does it take for you not to be a new convert? Is a new convert referring to age? Well, we're not given a specific time reference or age. This is a general qualification emphasizing spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean that that all elders are older men, older in years, but it does mean they're going to have some maturity. They're going to have uh, shown some faithfulness over time. The body's going to know them and know them well. 
All right, the next section. These will move through fairly quickly. There's many of them. Uh, they're the moral qualifications. The moral qualifications. First, he's to be above reproach. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. If anyone is above reproach, Titus 1.6. This requirement is not calling for perfection, but godliness. So again, I want to I pause and, and have us think through these qualifications. If it's asking for perfection, could Paul have said he fulfilled this role? Could Timothy? Could Titus? Could any of your pastors... No, no. And that's what is encouraging, I think, for the rest of the body. It, that should be encouraging for all of us. This is just growth on the way to glorification. And what we're saying is we're seeing some men ahead of us that are not perfect, but they're, they're growing and they're leading the way and they're encouraging others to follow their example as they, again, follow Christ. To be above reproach means to be free from any blemishes of character or conduct. You can't look at the man and say... Boy, he really struggles with that sin, and it's obvious to everybody. That's not helpful. Being an example, especially according to 1 Peter, where that's specifically put forward, is part of uh, his role. It's a major part of his role. This doesn't mean he doesn't sin. It doesn't mean that he does not have strengths and weaknesses in his personality or gifting. He shouldn't be able to do everything perfectly well. But his relationship with his wife and children is commendable, and he has no glaring moral weaknesses. Outsiders can't point their finger at something and discredit his profession to be a faithful follower of Christ. Again, he's still growing. He needs other men to help him grow, right? There's safety in a multitude of counselors. We walk together in Christian love. We grow together. But it is both safe and wise for the congregation to follow his mature example as a follower of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this a qualification maybe in your own home, before your spouse. What areas would they point out and say, well, I, th- I think this needs a little bit of work? Maybe a close friend. And you said, well, what of these qualities? Am I leading a life that I'm just overlooking something? Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. Where might I need to adjust and grow and ask for help and accountability. Second, self-controlled. An overseer must be self-controlled. That's listed in both uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The word self-control here is sometimes translated as temperate and is best understood as referring to mental sobriety, a mind that can think clearly and spiritually about important matters. It's the ability to be self-controlled, having balanced judgment, and being able to make rationally cool-headed decisions when things start to get challenging. Now, do you see this? Paul is anticipating there will be challenges in the relationships in church. I want you to keep that in mind as you look through this list as well. He cannot lose control of himself because things are not easy. Elders must be mentally and emotionally stable enough to make important decisions, even debated decisions, even decisions that are disagreed on by the congregation at times or portions of them. He must be able to lead through problems and pressures that will inevitably arise. Next, sensible. Sensible. 
He must be over, uh, an overseer must be sober-minded. This trait also focuses on the exercise of good judgment. It speaks of being prudent or wise, sound-minded and discreet. Who do you think of in the church and say, there is a wise, godly man that I would like to sit down and say, what, what do you think about this? You know they've thought through the scriptures well. Such discretion is often required by elders who have to make difficult decisions in the face of challenges. Third, am I on three? Maybe I shouldn't say a number. Uh, Fourth, respectable. An overseer must be respectable. It does not mean that an an elder does not gain respect by his office or his title. I want to keep emphasizing that. The title is not the thing. You can shepherd You can elder without a title. You can serve God without a title, without an office. We all should be aiming at that. So he does not gain his respect by an office or a title. It should be present. God's people respect him for his faithfulness, his steadiness, his long endurance. It should be present before he is ever put into office. If others are to follow him as their under-shepherd, he must prove his life is worth following. Isn't that what we want to be again in our home before our children? As our children are in our life groups and they're watching other believers, I'm so thankful for the intergenerational nature of our life groups. I can point my children to members of our life group as we pray for them throughout the week in family devotions and say, aren't we thankful for God's work in their life? That's a wonderful thing. How are you living that out in your life? Next, hospitable. An overseer must be hospitable. His life must be open so that others can be a part of it. If he's supposed to be promoting health through his life, his words, his, his character, his actions, he needs to open up his life, his home, so others can be a part of that. He must make time, not only for his own family, but also for his church family. This is a hard one for us. I think both in our culture today with all of our time commitments and and even here in our church, we have lots of things going on. Are we making time to open ourselves up over a meal, over a coffee? Are we finding time, sacrificing other things, making it a priority to disciple other people? As God continues to help me see the value of the church through the Bible, there is one organization that goes into the next life. And when we evaluate, what am I spending my time on? Are they souls that will go into eternity? Who's God put around me that I'm to be influencing? Can I really spend hours and hours on Netflix, Instagram, Facebook, and ignore the people of God? or the unbelieving neighbor across the street? Is that really a wise investment of my time? Am I hospitable? If an elder is to shepherd the flock of God effectively, his home must be open so that he can minister to God's people more than on Sunday mornings. If that's the limit, and and sometimes there are seasons of life where that may be the limit. Sometimes based on how things are in the home, you may not have an opportunity always to open it up. But sometimes you may need to make time. One of the things that Jenny and I talk about often is we got to sit down and plan intentionally or they fall by the wayside. Our good intentions evaporate with the busyness of life. I heard one pastor say that an elder or shepherd is to smell like his sheep. He's to be around them. 
right? Peter tells, tells the elders that they must shepherd the flock among you. He's to be among. I love that preposition to describe what shepherds are to be like among his flock. You have to know and love the sheep that God has given to be shepherded. He spilled his blood. Acts 20, 28. He spilled his blood to make them his own. They're precious to him. They better be precious to us. Next, he says gentle, 1 Timothy 3, 3. This word can mean kind, gracious, or forbearing. A gentle spiritual leader is not overbearing, but patient with others, especially when they have done wrong. Now, if if you're like me, as I've gone through this list, there are certain ones that jump out and say, you got to keep working at this, right? I hope that's true for you. This is one for me that I I think I, I need to continue to pray and ask God to help me be gentle in the areas where I'm given to leadership. Next, a good reputation. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, all of the qualifications ultimately reflect back on God and his nature and his character, his glory. But this one especially highlights that he shouldn't be bringing dishonor to God or the church by his character or conduct. Can outsiders say, boy, I didn't know he was a follower of Jesus. He's a teacher of the Bible? Really? Next, a lover of good. This is closely related to hospitality. It demonstrates a man who's willing to help others and seeks their good. He gives his life to serve others. It's not a huge sacrifice for him to say, you have to give up your time to go serve the body in this way. That's not a huge commitment. Now, he's evaluating his priorities, of course. But he's glad to serve and love and do good for God's people. Does this man have an internal desire to give himself for the good of God's people in whatever way he's able? Righteous. This means that he seeks to live according to God's word. Holy. The word holy here can be translated as devout. Does he give himself to pursuing God and his word? Is he growing, progressing in his sanctification? Again, this is one of those that bring us up short again. And it doesn't mean that he's holy and that he's perfected or sanctified already. But he's pursuing God. And this is something that I'd encourage you to pray through this list even for your pastors. It's really easy to say, well, I'm doing the ministry so I must be okay. This is, again, getting past what you do and saying, what is your heart like? You can show up on Sunday and look good to everybody, but not truly be devout and pursuing God. So this is something for all of us to say, do I look like a good Christian or am I pursuing Christ? It doesn't matter exactly in the end when, what I look like. Now, if I'm pursuing Christ, that'll be seen. But before God, am I pursuing him like I ought to? with a wholehearted, all-out pursuit? Or are there obstacles in the way? Things that I think, by my time commitments, are more important. Does he show himself to be a good example of a believer who prioritizes his own spiritual health, even to the exclusion of other things? Does he study scripture and theology in order to better understand his God? And that's why he studies. Not just so that he can have something to say when he's required to. Certainly that's a part of it, but he wants to know his God. Next, disciplined. 
or self-controlled. An elder should be self-disciplined. He should be a self-starter. An undisciplined person yields easily to temptations, but a disciplined person fights against lust and anger and laziness and other ungodly traits. Next, not a drunkard. Therefore, an overseer must not be a drunkard. Now, one who is addicted to wine or other strong drink is not qualified to lead and shepherd God's people. He lacks self-control. He lacks wisdom. The abuse of alcohol is a problem in most cultures and often results in ruined lives, marriages, and ministries. So there's great potential danger here. But I want you to notice carefully the prohibition. All right? It's not against drinking of any kind. Now, I'm sorry if that's hard for you. Uh, I'm not trying to raise an issue in your mind. I'm working through the list. It says not a drunkard. If Paul wanted to say never a drink, he could have said that, couldn't he? And in fact, he tells Timothy, and again, there's lots to discuss on this, but for medicinal purposes, he's supposed to take alcohol, an alcoholic beverage, right? 1 Timothy 5.23. So we can't overstate the requirement because that'd be easier for us to deal with and we'd just feel better. Paul is clearly dealing here with the excesses of drinking too much alcohol. Again, in this, in this, I just want you to hear that my responsibility as a teacher of God's word is to say what God's word says, not what I feel like would be easier for us to hear. Okay? We cannot add to scripture even if we believe it would seem safer to do so. John Piper warns, by imposing restrictions where the New Testament never imposes them, this kind of requirement in principle involves us in a legalism that has its roots in unbelief. Do we really believe that we know better than the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity who communicates the word of God, do we know better than him? It's a sign of a faded power and joy and heart righteousness that once was created by the power of Christ and cannot be preserved by laws that we make up. Now, there is certainly wisdom and liberty here that we need to be very careful with. And I mean very careful with. We need to be considering each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not flaunting things that we say, well, that's, that's my liberty. You need to be asking yourself, why would, I, why would I do this if it's dangerous to other people or if it would be hard for other people? But I cannot say what the scriptures cannot say or does not say, and, and we, you can't either. You've got to be really careful about that. Scripture does not require abstinence, though that may be a very wise choice for some. It warns regularly of the dangers of alcohol, and we need to say what it says. The real issue addressed here is the abuse, though, of any controlling substance that would bring shame on the person and reproach on the church. So again, we must state, again, what Scripture says. All right, if you have questions about that, I'm glad to talk to you about that. Again, the intention in this discussion, in this list, is not to raise those kind of questions for you, but again, to work through what we're looking for in a spiritually mature man. Next, not a bully. An overseer must be, and and again, later in the verse, not violent, but gentle. He must not be quick-tempered. 
An elder must not be someone who is easily irritated and has a short temper. He must regularly keep himself in check rather than being ready to argue and fight. He must be able to calmly and rationally deal with heated arguments and tense situations that often find their way into the church. If you have led in the church for any amount of time, I promise, I promise, you will have been tempted to be irritated, impatient, not gentle. God's people, as much as they are bought by his blood, are still sinners. And in our sinfulness, we respond in the wrong way. But that, that's actually a good thing. It's an opportunity to our growth, not an obstacle. And I know for me personally, that is hard for me to see. It takes some spiritual thinking, the spirit to apply his word to my life, to say, this is actually good for you, this hardship. But God intends that for us. Next, very similarly, not quarrelsome. Now, have you ever met a quarrelsome person in the church? Someone you feel like is quarrelsome? Someone you may say, oh, I think that person's quarrelsome because I'm always quarreling with them. People by nature argue and bicker. They say things they shouldn't. In our pride, we insist on our perspective, our way. I grew up doing it this way. This is the way we must do it. I think this would work better for everybody else. In churches, there are arguments over our music, our programs, our dress, individuals leading which programs, the choices we ourselves would make or not make, our school choices, all kinds of things, right? An elder is to address and relieve those kinds of tensions, not just ignore them nor add to them. One of the ways that we have worked on this as a body to be careful about what we're talking about, investing in, being able to say, there's differences of opinion allowed here. There's different convictions and conclusions allowed here. Is theological triage. We talk about that from time to time. What does the Bible say is the most important? Let's keep talking about that. Because by nature, what do we do? We want to find the things where we say, well, I've figured this out and everybody should fall in line behind my thinking. That's not helpful. Let's talk about what unifies us, and that's Christ. That's why those are the things that the Bible talks about the most. An elder has that clearly in his mind. Not greedy is the next one. Greed is warned against repeatedly in the pastoral epistles. In the first century, it's very easy to take a position of authority and abuse it for financial gain. We see evidences of that all over our world as spiritual leaders take advantage of the fears the desires to have God work for them, they, they monetize that. I've talked to several different missionaries who see that especially in their nation. But we see it here in ours. We see it here in ours. It's not to be arrogant. An arrogant person is self-willed, constantly insisting that things be done his way. This is the opposite of being gentle. An elder must not be inconsiderate of other people's opinions and feelings, and he cannot run over God's people in order to do just what he wants. Such a person does not make a good elder because he can't really work on a team then. If it always has to be his way, how does that work amongst a plurality of elders? He's to be seeking the best for the body and not just always to get his way. That would not be a mature spiritual man. Lastly, in this section, not quick-tempered. An elder must constantly keep his temper in check. He cannot lash out at those for whom Christ spilled his blood. 
And again, as we said, this is something that's in the process. He will be someone who's quick to recognize when he does and is humble enough to admit and forsake and repent and talk to people in the body when, when he does uh, fail. He must love God's people even when they say unkind and hurtful things, when they're difficult to lead or are stubborn. All right, the last two, the last two qualifications um, are two that take a little bit of time that have different possibilities that Christians have disagreed about. Um, we can take the last 10 minutes for questions, um, and maybe we'll do that and, and um, start on that. And if we don't have a ton of questions, then I'll maybe start on one of these two. Do we have any questions so far on this list? As you look through that, what things come to your mind? Anything in particular? Yeah. So I'm sorry if you said this and I missed it. Yeah. Yeah. We as a church have a plan for like what exactly that means, the length of time we would want someone to be a faithful believer, or yeah. Yeah, so I think because Paul leaves it a little bit less specific, part of what you're supposed to do, I would think, and this fits in with 2 Timothy 2.2, find faithful men who can teach others also. That's kind of part of what helps me figure out what that is. Does that make sense? So I'm going to use the other qualifications to help me understand that qualification. Um, So I want him to be able to teach, and I'm going to give him practice before I say this is an elder. I want to see how he handles that role. So I think, I think I'm going to use the other ones to help me figure out that one. So that's, that's good. Good question. Somebody else? Other things come to mind? Yes, sir. Is there a, anything in your structure to train up young men, or is it more yeah. just the church life is going to be there? Yeah, so... That is something that we're working on probably behind the scenes to make it maybe more formal. The, the, what I've seen from other pastors is there's a lot of places where it's informal that leads to some kind of formal. I think especially as we get closer to saying, let's present this person to the body, there's some formal examination. So the way that I've thought about it is we've wrestled through this. We've talked to other churches. Um, one church has almost um, a graduate level seminary class that they want them to take and see how they handle that. And if they're not willing to put in the time or don't have the time, then they would conclude maybe this isn't the right time for them. I kind of feel like for us that might be asking a little bit much. Um, I talked to another um, church, and what they do is they want to examine um, from the other elders their doctrine and their character and their life. And so they'll sit down together um, as a group and say, tell me about these doctrines, and they'll tell them ahead so they can do some study Um, that's what I would like us to do. So part of the schedule that we're working toward is, and this is what I explained a little bit, we only have two more weeks to talk about this, and we're working through implementation. Um, And then behind the scenes, especially this year, we're investing in um, different ways of building up and um, building up more leaders. There's conferences that we're doing and workshops, so we want to keep giving those opportunities. Um, But then at the end of August, in September, this is kind of where I'm thinking timeline, we want to start looking for nominations from the body um, and find affirmation between the elders and the pastors and the congregation, and then let those guys be vetted so that by December, we're ready to present them as 
um, elders to be voted on by the body. So there is a little bit that's organic, and I think that should be, and there's a little bit that we're saying is formal. And I think part of what we're wrestling with is what do we need to adjust in that as we go? Um, so we're still working on that and thinking through that, praying through that, asking for direction on that. So be glad to talk um, if you've had other experience and would like to help us think through that. That's a good question. Good. Somebody else? Yes. Just more of a comment. Yeah. I was asked um, not that long ago, how should we pray for our elders? And I said, this is a great list. Wonderful. Because we have people that may have been qualified, but we want to yes. stay qualified. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. So th- I will put this out on that back table as well. Um, I've tried to give some of the things we've gone through in here. Um, this may be something even before December that, that we preach through, because I think this is really important. And what I'm encouraged by is it's not in the sense of, well, this is what your elders are supposed to be, so there's not much application for you in this. This is what we are supposed to be. So there's lots of application in this. You know, This is what we want to grow toward. Yes, ma'am. Um, if the body gives you a list of names to nominate, yeah. And then you vet them. Yes. Um, and you choose three that you feel um, qualified yeah. in every area. Yeah. Do those three autumn, like, do we vote to make, to say, yes, we agree with you? Or do we choose one of the three? How does that work? Yeah, that's excellent. Um, so, what we're setting up, um, and we're talking through this in the new constitution. So, the committee's. Just give you an update on that real quick. The committee has finished their first draft. The deacons are evaluating it currently. It's in their hands. We'll bring it to you guys um, in a couple of months. But what we're proposing in the Constitution is a work together between the congregation and the elders. Um, Those who are eldering have much more responsibility in the vetting. um, And so we believe that and we'll, we'll lean into that. We give the congregation an opportunity. We have something like a month where once they have been nominated... The elders vet and they put that name up. The body has a month to pray through that one or two or three. We don't have a number limit on that. Whoever's ready, um, the body will pray through that. And after a month, we'll vote together as a body on that. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? So, so we, it, it doesn't have to be any specific number. So if they're qualified, the body will vote to affirm. Yes, sir. So you were saying, so on that preliminary list, if they're nominated during that month, whoever is not qualified or if there are any hesitancies, then they would come off of that list. So the list that you vote on is the updated list? So, so how that would work is the, the congregation will nominate, the elders will vet that list. So that happens, that's how it's been um, done in our church. Um, here, here's why. Um, there's qualifications that the elders are responsible to maintain. There are issues that the body does not know popularly, and they shouldn't. Um, that might be on that nominee's side of them saying, I can't do this right now. Or, I'm kind of struggling in a couple of areas. I can't do this right now. Or, the, bod- the, the pastors are, the elders are feeling like, I definitely see this character but not the gifting, and maybe they don't have the time to do this. So both sides are evaluating that. Um, You really are given a lot of responsibility to your pastors, your elders, 
to help set that before the body. But it's, it is a work in concert. So once that, that is vetted by the elders, then it goes back to the body. Does that make sense? Does the body only see the, those that are nominated and vetted? Yes. Yeah, because there's, there's pieces that are pri- really private conversations, discipleship-wise, um, that aren't needed to be made public. And again, I, I, I want to encourage you to wrestle through this. Um, some of this is a challenge to us. This isn't democracy, and it's not supposed to be. Um, these qualifications are responsibilities that the body can know in general, but the pastors are supposed to sit down with those men and walk through these very specifically. They're going to sit down and talk about their theology and say, where are you weak or strong? Um, they're going to look at what is apt to teach really mean. Um, they're going to look at, are you able to not just promote the gospel and promote good teaching? Are you able to defend it? Have we seen that worked out? Um, so sometimes the answer can be, you know, after a nomination, I think this person's ready. It could be, I think they could be ready in a little bit of time and with some discipleship, or it could be, I don't think so. Um, And then what this does is force us to have more discipling conversations. So, and that's a good thing. Yes, sir. Going back to my wife's question. So I guess when the vote comes, we have like a percentage in mind, because I've been in churches that we want. Yeah. A lot of things pass with 66%. Yeah. If we have 30% of the congregation say, I really don't think this, I'm thinking, wow, that's really a horrible number. Yes, right. I agree with you. <laughs> that would not be good. Just confirming what the elders have already picked, I guess, I think part of, again, part of moving away from thinking of this in political ideals of saying who's, who just gets the most votes. This is meant to say this is a shepherd that the body recognizes his voice when he speaks the word. That's what's important. Not, oh, we like this guy. We see, you know. As we're working through qualifications, biblical qualifications together, we're going to want to be encouraged. So if there's a significant portion of the body that's like, I don't see that guy as an elder, this is not wise. Um, So I totally agree with you. So I believe the percentage that we have, and again, we've based this off of other constitutions that we've compared and evaluated, is 75%. So there's a potential. I wouldn't want it to be that much. 25% 25% of the body says, I don't, I don't think this is a shepherd for me. That's what that month is meant to do. Again, the responsibility of congregations in choosing their leaders is to take that month and go talk to that person and go talk to their elders. What are you not sure about? Because um, if we as, as the elders and the congregation have nominated, we've affirmed that, vet that, spent, a time, spent time on that, and then put them up, and the congregation says, no, we've got to disconnect somewhere. Um, and we need to do a better job of leading, and the body needs to do a better job of helping us vet that person. Does that, does that make sense? This should be something that is not disunifying. This is very unifying, because we're saying, yes, this is another shepherd to help us disciple and grow together. If the body is disunified, that's not good for um, dis, disunified on that person. That's disunifying to the whole congregation, and it opens up a can of worms in several different places. This needs to be a clear, clear majority saying, we see God's gifting. And, and that's, where, that's where the Bible tells us that, that shepherds are a gift, a gift to God's people. And we want to recognize that. And it should be an overwhelmingly positive thing. 
that we're saying, yes, yes, let's, let's add this one to our team. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so that's a good question. Potentially, um, is there a limit? Is there a limit? Right, right. Yeah, and that's a question we've asked. How many would we have? Um, there's a sense where I don't foresee that many. Um, and I wonder if we got to that many, if we'd be moving too fast. And then if we had that many, the better strategy would be to start talking to them individually and say, you need to go and help another church get healthy. If we have that many, we need to start planting churches because those are men who are able to build up the body through the word. So go do that. And we may even direct them that way and ask you to fund them that way. So, yeah. So I I don't know how many would be the optimal number for our body. Um, When you think about the work of an elder is discipling God's people through their health and their weaknesses spiritually, we, we could use a lot more disciplers at that pastoral level, you know? When you really think about it in that way. Yeah, Ed? If you're, as we are, with three, pastor, if you will, pastor elders. Yes, sir. Then lay elders, you probably would be talking about five, six, or seven would be a, a good beginning mm-hmm. number so that there would be a plurality yes, sir. of lay elders. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that would be our goal. I don't think we've stated it that way. In some constitutions they've stated, and again, I get the sense of it. I understand why they've stated that they want more lay elders than staff elders. And the idea is if there's turmoil, like, like a pastor like me, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I have no plans for that. But if a pastor leaves, right, that's his job and he may leave the lay elders and having more of them will provide more stability. And that, that's the idea. They're staying and in the body, that, that's the point. Um, and that, that's what happens. That's what's, what's usually good. All right, I'm going to cut this off at this point. We're a little bit over time. You guys ended up having plenty of questions. That's great. Um, and we'll come back to finish the last two qualifications and talk about deacons next week. All right, let's pray. Let's stand, and I'll, I'll pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your design for the church. As you told Titus, this is what promotes health in a body is godly men who are speaking the truth and godly members who are living it out. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize those among us who are spiritually mature and ready and able to lead. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help them even today to be growing, to be growing their love for you and their love for God's people. Lord, and for us as a body, Lord, these are character qualities that are most clearly seen in Christ and that through the work of the Spirit were to be growing in, each of them. Lord, help us to recognize those areas where we are weak and give us grace to grow. Help us to recognize those areas where you have done a work and give you great thanks and see those with joy. So, Father, I pray that we would give you all honor and glory as we seek to follow your word carefully and clearly for the sake of your glory, for the health of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.